0: This is episode 196 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Human Brain Creation with Dr. Aparna Baduri. Hey everybody, this is Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Aparna Baduri from UCLA on the podcast to talk about her research on how the human brain is created. That's some heavy stuff. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in Stem Cell News coming right up. But first...
1: Neuroscientists looking for more predictive power in their disease models are increasingly adopting human pluripotent stem cells in their research. Stem cell technologies offers products, protocols, and training to adopt and support human pluripotent stem cell-derived neural models. Explore their collection of technical videos and webinars on neurological disease modeling by visiting www.stemcell.com slash neural disease model.
0: School is out. Where I'm at, Arun, and that means, you know, a lot of people are headed to the beach. I always like to shame myself this time of year. In this, this, in this case, I'm doing it with a stem cell story. This is about uh, obesity, you know. I, as I get older, some people are worried about degenerating organs and all that stuff. I'm worried about my expanding waistline. And also, also, my uh, thinning hair, you know. It's a bad combination. Um, but, you know, speaking in terms of health, the obesity, uh, we all know that there's a lot of uh, diseases that are associated with obesity. Um, and also, those same diseases are often age-associated, right? Uh, so, it's unclear for a lot of these diseases whether the connection is obesity or it just, you know, correlates um, with age. You get fat as you get old, too, as it turns out, and you get sloppy. Um so this is a story about the correlation with the hair follicle, specifically, um, and the relationship between a high-fat diet and the thinning of uh, hair follicle stem cells and your hairline. Um, so we also know that there's an age associated, and this is like mechanistically shown, that there's an age-associated deficiency in collagen 17A1. All right, that's this hemidesmosome component that anchors the hair follicle stem cell to the basement membrane, all right? And with age, that erodes a bit and you get this stem cell-centric hair follicle aging phenotype where the hair follicle miniaturizes and it thins, okay? Um, and we know that obesity, it's a risk factor for androgenic alopecia in humans. But we really don't understand the mechanism of that, right? So enter uh, the lab of Emi Nishimura at the University of Tok- Tokyo, um, where they're looking at this connection. Uh, and what they showed is that it is, in fact, an obesity induced stress um, that uh, influences the hair follicle stem cells and ultimately accelerates hair thinning. Uh, and What they showed is that the high-fat diet uh, activates hair follicle stem cells towards this epidermal keratinization uh, by generating these excess ROS, the reactive oxygen species. Uh, And then they use fate tracing, epigenetics, reverse genetics, of course, they got to use it all, this is a nature story, Um, and showed that the high-fat diet, this is in mice, uh, induced uh, lipid droplets, and NF-kappa-B activation within the hair follicle stem cell, um, and that activated IL-1 receptor. Uh, and here we go here. All this converges on a, a significant inhibition on uh, sonic hedgehog signal transduction in the hair follicle stem cell. So hedgehog signaling is big for uh, the, the biology of the hair follicle stem cell. Uh, and when you disrupt that, you know, you can imagine it's not good. And in this case, you get aberrant differentiation and you get the hair follicle miniaturization and ultimately the, the loss of, of the hair follicle completely and baldness, guys um, and girls. All of us out there have this to worry about as we get fatter. Uh, here's where it gets good. The news is good because they had this either transgenic or pharmacologic activation of sonic hedgehog, and that rescued the high-fat diet-induced hair loss. And the mice, at least, we haven't tried this with the humans. I'm sure there's people out there running out there to get their hedgehog agonists. Be careful, people. Um, But uh, what's really interesting about this in terms of like take-home, notwithstanding the whole get to the pharmacist and see what you can get that'll get in your sonic hedgehog, signaling pathway. But uh, really, I think the authors extend this as just a concept that there's a inflammatory, because, you know, there's a lot of age slash obesity associated pathology. And it makes you wonder if, if inflammatory signals um, resulting from obesity can repress the signaling apparatus in multiple uh, organ niches that uh, uh, waylays regeneration and accelerates uh, kind of attrition of, of organs. You know, they, they, in this story, I think maybe it's a little aggressive, but they extend this to say the hair follicle is essentially a little mini organ. And they say, oh, we wonder uh, that if, if obesity is affecting other organs in the same way. So uh, I, uh, I think fair, maybe a little aggressive, but a fair extension, but you know, bottom line here, get your hedgehog back up and you might get your hair to grow out. Yeah.
1: This is a it's a fun story, perhaps good news and maybe bad news for the, the larger folks and the folks who are not hoping to lose their hair as well. Um, I mean, like you said, this is all animal models. This is all mice. And the first thing that I thought of here was actually, you know, we've had guests on the show that have amazing human models of hair development. Now, the first person I thought of was actually Carl Kohler, and uh, he's got these really nifty little organoids that are actually growing human hair, right? So I'm wondering if you might be able to apply this system or his system to this particular
0: observation. I don't know.
1: But hey, find you some Sonic Hedgehog, who knows? Maybe go a long way.
0: (laughs) Rescue my summer, for God's sakes. Uh, But, you know, you you said it about the human system. I've always found that it's an interesting kind of dichotomy. The the hair follicle is such a brilliant model for understanding stem cells because it's like this mini-organ that self-renews also has such a broad range of differentiation potential. Um, but I think as you talk about recapitulating this in a kind of human organoid context, it really underscores how far we have to go with our human systems to, to really get there. The hair follicle, while I guess you could say it's, you know, self-contained is really complex and to incorporate all the elements, you know, Carl Kohler, I know he grew the hair and the mouse, but, uh, you know, not that simple i don't think to to recapitulate perfectly the function of the hair follicle niche so we're gonna we're gonna have to wait probably i mean not long i guess the pace the way things are going it won't be long but um like you said won't stop somebody from activating their hedgehog
1: (laughs) yeah i mean there's uh anytime you have some sort of pharmacological intervention to reverse or improve like hair loss that's uh that's gonna catch some catch some attention that's for sure and actually, moving on to the next paper for, for the roundup, it's actually coming from Emi Nishimura again, and she's actually not the the last author on this paper, but she's the second to last author. Uh, also coming from Tokyo, Japan, and this the last author here is is, is Daisuke Nanba. First author is Takuya Hirose. Title of this paper. This is pretty, well, kind of different. I mean, we're still kind of talking about skin here, but. Label-Free Quality Control and Identification of Human Keratinocyte Stem Cells by Deep Learning-Based Automated Cell Tracking. This is a stem cells paper. This is it's a little different from what we normally talk about. We don't talk about machine learning too much, although we did talk about it a, a few months ago with uh, Todd McDevitt's work on incorporating machine learning to evaluate IPSC um, differentiation potential, I believe. So this is starting to catch on ways that you might be able to integrate machine learning-based approaches into evaluating cell quality, and that's kind of what they're doing here. They developed a deep learning-based automated cell tracking or deep act technology that they call it for non-invasive quality control and identification of cultured human uh, keratinocyte stem cells. So they combine their deep learning with uh, different Filter-based algorithms to actually track the motion of individual keratinocyte stem cells and keratinocytes uh, in a really densely packed population using just phase contrast. So that was their their data set that they actually used to train their machine learning algorithm. So this deep act approach was able to really rapidly analyze the motion of individual keratinocytes, which you can use to figure out how these cells are actually ultimately going to move dynamically in culture conditions. Um, and importantly, they want to see if they can actually distinguish the cells of interest from the non-keratinocyte stem cell colonies in the same population. So you can imagine how this would help you down the road if you have a mixed bag of cells and you want to know how that mixed bag of cells is actually dynamically moving in that population, then perhaps this machine learning approach can, can help you out. So it's a it's a tool for quality quality control, um, since you know this is a, a universal problem in a lot of ways in the stem cell field is is mixed populations of cells. Um, I mean, one thing I always talk about when it comes to machine learning based approaches is the training data set. So garbage in, garbage out, right? You have to have a good training data set to actually have uh, a decent predictive approach on the other side. But I think they've they've got a good one here.
0: Yeah. I- i you know we're at the i s s c r in parallel right now twenty twenty one and what I'm really seeing in the meeting is how critical uh the the our machine overlords are gonna be to advancing the biological agenda uh if they don't decide to you know completely wipe us out um we're gonna need the machine learning process. And you could see it's widely extent now in the field. A lot of people are applying these uh, technologies and approaches to really hack uh, these massive, massive uh, data sets. You know, it turns out there's so many things going on. The struggle with the auto automated driving really illustrates how something that we take for granted is simple, um, can be really tough. So you said garbage in, garbage out, but I think we're really getting there. You know, the Allen Brain Atlas uh, we went to some talk, that talk uh, about how how that's expanding and how critical that data set is just for for almost like sitting at home in your armchair, you know, uh, you can really get into into the data and, and advance your your own science, really, what you're doing in your own lab. You can advance remotely using these um, digital data sets.
1: Yeah, there's just so many data sets out there with all these Atlas-based approaches that like we were talking about before you know you theoretically if you're a grad student who's not at all interested in doing hands-on stem cell culture you don't have to do it necessarily just find you all these data sets find yourself all these data sets think of a, a really good hypothesis a really good question that you want to answer and then use everything that we've got that's been developed over the last like 10-ish years all these omics based analysis to drive your your research question so uh, an exciting time to be a, a bioinformatician anybody who's involved in in bioinformatics machine learning it's a it's a hot field and if you're a trainee out there you should learn how to code a little bit honestly i mean this is something like i i was scared of honestly i you know never really wanted to get into bioinformatics but i you know took a course learned some r learned some unix and even me the the most developmental of developmental biologists and the most basic of stem cell biologists was able to pick up a little bit of coding expertise so if i can do it you
0: can do it too get out there guys um get your coding on uh just getting back i remember uh rube actually at, at the conference from the from the Allen. just getting back to the alan brain Atlas. one of the things she showed this is a segue, people um was heart individual heart cardiomyocytes you know you're sitting there and they're rotating in 3d and then they had this whole database of cells. You guys should really have a look at this um, that allow you to, to visualize uh, endoMT. And that brings me to the story I'm going to talk about. endoMT, which is a really critical facet of, of the heart in health and development, but also in disease, um, you know, fibrosis of the heart, uh, fib- fibroblast activation, it's called, it's a, it's a major factor downstream of uh, heart infarction, um, heart attack that leads To heart failure ultimately uh, affects 24 million people worldwide. All right, these are people that have have in often cases survived a heart attack, but the quality of life is in steep decline. Everybody knows this story. It's a major target for regenerative medicine, Um, and targeting gene transcription uh, is one of the major therapeutic strategies. I mean, we always talk about grass and whatnot, but actually uh, trying to harness the endogenous cell cohort there by um, genetic engineering is also another approach that's that's really popular. Um, And one of the ways that that that's been done is to target therapeutically, um, pharmacologically, uh, to target a a gene regulatory apparatus um, uh, that involves these proteins called the BET proteins, BRD2, BRD3, BRD4, BRDT, BET proteins. Um, And they're really... Popular target uh, by targeting, you can interfere with their enhancer to promoter signaling in vivo and disrupt this fibroblast activation. Um, and it's been done. I mean, you use this systemic administration of these bet domain inhibitors in mice, you can ameliorate heart failure. Uh, but you know, the, the cell types and targets within this heart that are affected here are not really well known. The molecular apparatus and mechanisms not well understood. Uh, and you need to get there because you can't really systemically admit or administer these BET, um, bromodermine inhibitors to humans because, you know, they do important stuff in other, in other, other niches. So, uh, Deepak Srivastava, who we all know, he's been on the show and Saptarsi Halder, um, from the Gladstone, they endeavored to to really unravel, unpack the uh, effect of these BET bromodomain inhibitors in the context of uh, heart of the mouse to try and you know mechanistically under uh, you know un- uh, unravel it so that they could drug it in humans. Uh, they used single cell uh, RNA seq, ATAC seq, and heart tissue um, with this intermittent. BET bromodomain inhibitor exposure to try and figure out what the direct targets are by RNA also, the cis regulatory targets and enhancers and whatnot with ATAC-seq. And what they showed is that there's this reversible transcriptional switch uh, that, that coincides with the activation of the fibroblasts and that they toggle between the quiescent and activated state. Um, And they showed with the seq single cell that there's these previously undescribed that had not been shown that uh, there's an enhancer for the transcription factor MEOX1. And that MEOX1 was specifically activated um, in these activated fibroblasts and that there was a big gene program required uh for you know TGF beta is typically used to induce fibroblast activation they showed that there was this whole that this enhancer program was was di- was uh required for the TGF beta mediated activation and then using crispr they were able to um inhibit this element they just pretty much wiped out this enhancer element uh proving that meox was a critical regulator of this fibro- fibroblast activation um, and then extended it beyond that. I mean, that's, I think, a big idea right there just to show, because now as we think more and more about the the CRISPR and using uh, these you know techniques that are widely applied now, it's not so far out to think, hey, maybe we can use it to, to target um, endo-MT or, or uh, the cardiac fibrosis. But also then they go on to show that in other contexts, in the, in the human, in lung, in liver, in kidney fibroblasts, when when all those tissues are activated, that this meox whole, whole circuit is activated as well. So it's kind of a, a direct um, influence on our, our, you know, therapeutic potential for the heart, but also maybe talking about a, a widely conserved uh, mechanism of fibrosis in other organs as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point is that, you know, fibrosis is not just something that's exclusive to the heart. It's affecting liver and many other organ types. And perhaps this is a bit of a universal mechanism. Um, One thing I did want to talk about was the importance of the non-coding portion of the genome or the regulatory portion of the genome, right? Which is the vast majority of the human genome. And uh, that's what they're able to do here is identify an enhancer element that's actually, you know, perhaps outside of the coding portion of the genome um, to, to beneficial effect. And this is something that is being looked at pretty significantly, not just in the context of heart disease, but across the board, there are so many uh, non-coding elements that have critical roles in regulating critical, uh, genes associated with, with genetic disease. So, um, it's, it's a black box. It's definitely a black box in terms of, you know, what's out there and what we can still uncover with this non-coding portion of the genome. But uh, I think um, there's, there's a lot of work that's going on in this area.
0: Yes. And while, I mean, it may be a stretch to think about targeting the heart with like base editors or something to kind of mitigate endoMT and post-heart attack, I don't know, maybe a stretch. And although it's not limited to this in this story, I mean, the whole idea of MEOX is novel in itself. So this, this did illuminate novel regulators. But as you said, you know, we're at this conference now and a lot of people are talking about this is, is targeting these non-coding regions for, for regulatory, to exert some regulatory leverage. Um, in, in, in the blood Uh, and often cases I'm hearing a lot about in the blood, it's just much more, uh, accessible, um, to these kind of base editing approaches, uh, in a way that's maybe more practical. So I don't think it'll be long before we, we stop targeting. Well, we're never going to stop talking about targeting genes. Uh, Mm -hmm. but you know, the whole idea of, of the enhanceosome or whatever, the enhanceome, uh, and its therapeutic relevance, I think is, is really burgeoning.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And another tissue type where this is becoming a huge area of interest and has been a huge area of interest is the brain, um, and in the developing and the adult human brain as well. The, how do these non-coding portions of the genome actually influence brain development and brain brain function? And uh, the last paper we're going to focus on from the roundup here today is coming out of Paula Arlotta's lab at Harvard. And also on this paper is Aviv Regev, who used to be at the Broad Institute and is the queen of single cell, as we know, who I think has moved on to is it Genentech. Yeah, I believe Genentech as uh, as of a few months ago. But this is, I guess, one of the last studies that she was on while you know she's wrapping up her lab at the Broad Institute. First author here is Daniela DiBella. The title of the paper is Molecular Logic of Cellular Diversification In the mouse cerebral cortex, it's a nature article. So we know that the the mammalian cerebral cortex has a ton of different cell types, right? All the glial cells, astrocytes, as well as the neurons and all the support, other support cells too. These are generated during a series of temporally controlled events that are really under tight regulation right and this regulation is oftentimes very evolutionary specific so species specific and that's perhaps part of the reason that we are humans and that we are who we are is because our for some reason evolutionarily our brains decided to take this unique path during development and give us the big brains that we have today right so there's a whole network that's gotta regulate this process but the the actual logic and the detailed analyses of how the different cell classes and how they're actually interacting moving around during brain mammalian brain development it's it's a bit of a black box right so what they're did what they did here was create an atlas that's what that's what you do today right that's what you're doing with single cell these days you're creating atlases seems like every single round that we're talking about at least one atlas paper and this is a mouse cortex atlas okay of developing mouse cortex Uh, single cell atlas, not only using single cell RNA sequencing, but also single cell ATAC-seq, since that's become quite a bit of a hot topic. And even when I was doing single cell quite a bit during my my first postdoc, single cell ATAC hadn't really caught on yet, but apparently now it's become much more accessible. So that's really cool to see. So what they did is they actually sampled the mouse neocortex every single day, during embryo- embryonic uh, cortical genesis and at early postnatal time points. And they combined the sequencing data with spatial transcriptomics, t- uh, a time course, a spatial transcriptome time course. So you can see the expression of different populations in the developing brain of the mouse. And they used a lot of computational power, like we're talking about, to actually reconstruct the different developmental trajectories of different cell types in the cortex. So of course the the glia and the neurons as well, and then they figured out where they're located and the, importantly the gene regulatory programs that are actually accompanying like how they did the 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 development of these cells and that in that way they can actually figure out like a developmental map all right that's kind of what they're going for here. a Google map to you know to take another phrase from ICCR, a Google map of the developing mouse brain okay and ultimately hopefully it can provide a global picture of the different regulatory mechanisms that are actually controlling the diversification of the the neocortex and i think ultimately that this this it's not going to end here right you can think of a million different organs maybe not a million but hundreds of different tissue types that you can apply this exact same principle to so take tissue x that you're interested in studying its development and apply these hardcore omics-based approaches combined with computation to really get a better idea of how the the cell dynamics are at play here during the development of that particular organ. So I think uh, we're just getting started with these kind of Atlas-based approaches, fortunately or unfortunately, take your pick.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, I thought it's funny because we're, we're, I thought we were at the end of the kind of that first wave where there's just so much single-cell data, every single organ every single stage in the mouse and in the human aborted fetus primary tissue just single cell um and now we're adding the spatial element. so i'm waiting for a reset with like all these new visium et cetera approaches uh you know i'm not complaining but it's 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 just i guess it's interesting to see that that every iteration there's just more there's more Resolution. There's more to be learned. I think is is the real uh, standout to me. Is that you know there's not a lot of disproving things, although that does happen and it's fun sometimes in a in a good way. You know to see. You know, janet Rassant said once in, in the in the conference and her in her lecture, uh, she said that she was she was very pleased to be the the first person to report on her own errant result. And I think that's a great thing in terms of the the, the revision, the revisional nature of, of science. Um, it's not a lot of disproving things that that happens sometimes, but really that you don't learn new stuff. So I, I'm always amazed to see how we continue to peel the onion with these technological approaches.
1: Yeah. But something that we talked about, I guess, in a previous episode is with the evolution of these technologies, like single cell, from even back from the fluid IM days to now to the ten x days, the resolution that you can actually get with your single cell is is orders of magnitude more than what it used to be. And that's, I'm guessing, that's going to be the case, like five years from now, as the technology evolves. And I got to bring it up again. It's just, you know, do we just keep on reiterating and redoing these experiments as the technology evolves? And uh, the reality is if we're learning new biology by doing that, I'm all for it, but why reinvent the wheel, right?
0: Yeah, well, I guess we got to justify our salaries. It ruins some of us at least. (laughs) Uh, But you know, you said it very early in the roundup, for you trainees out there, there will be a job out there for you, one. And two, get out there and learn to code, because if you want to be deft at navigating the future landscape of science and data analysis, you're going to need to know Your R, and uh, we're going to talk a bit about that, I'm sure, with our guest, Dr. Baduri, in a minute. Um, But before we get to that, I have a quick message for all of you from Stem Cell Technologies. If you use organoids, have a look at the Stem Diff Cerebral Organoid Differentiation Kit by Stem Cell Technologies to take your own mini-brains to the next research frontier. This 3D culture kit reliably mimics early brain development so you can focus on your next questions instead of on troubleshooting. The possibilities are endless, and the future begins now. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash cerebral organoids. All right, on this week's episode of the show, we have as our guest Dr. Aparna Baduri, who is Assistant Professor of Biological Chemistry At the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, Dr. Burduri's lab studies how the human brain is created with billions of cells spanning hundreds or thousands of cell types. Uh, They also explore how the cell building blocks of development can reappear later in life in brain cancers like the dreaded glioblastoma. Aparna, thanks so much for joining us today. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a fun chat, Dr. Baduri, and you've just started up your lab at UCLA early this year, and part of your focus is going to be figuring out how the brain normally develops. That's sort of been your focus, your PhD and postdoc as well, and then how cell development goes awry later in life, such in the case of brain cancer, such as glioblastoma that Dalen just mentioned. It's a cancer with a really high mortality rate, unfortunately. So before we actually get into your organoid and single cell work, tell us a little bit about glioblastoma and why you've decided to actually focus your lab's work on this cancer of the brain.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I've always had an interest in the intersection between normal development and cancer. As a PhD student, I actually worked in the skin, but was still studying normal skin differentiation and skin cancer. And so when I transitioned to studying the human brain, I wanted to keep that trajectory of really using development principles to try to understand cancer. And initially focused on glioblastoma because it is the most aggressive and most common form of adult brain cancer unfortunately, tumors usually arise. And then upon detection, patients tend to die within about 18 months. And what's really crazy about this cancer is that after surgeries are done to take out the tumor, the tumor usually appears, reappears within a few months, but oftentimes it's somewhere really far from where the first tumor was. So this suggests that not only is the tumor capable of re emerging, but also there's a lot of migratory behavior. The cells are really traveling far distances in order to seed new tumor populations. And so many of these aspects of the cancer were really interesting. And because cell migration is such an important aspect of development, we thought that we could look and see if there were any parallels between it, between normal development and cancer. And One of the things since coming to UCLA that I've started to become interested in it as well is really bridging that divide from development and cancer even further and also starting to explore pediatric brain cancers, which also are very deadly and devastating and not much is understood about why those develop either.
0: Yes, it's an ambitious goal, Gleo, but um, you are suited to the task. You're coming off a tremendously productive phase of your career during your postdoc. And, you know, in my opinion, it feels like you can pretty much write your ticket to fund a a really ambitious next chapter, I would say. Um, But, you know, the question, I guess, is, is with such a high level of output, is there any pressure to main maintain the momentum on that specific trajectory in your postdoc? You know, because I was kind of your mentor's field and you owned it, of course, and reinvented it on your own with the help of many others, of course, I'm sure you'll say. Um, but it's yours. But you could, you know, also pivot, right? This is an opportunity to do something really high risk, maybe a little bit adjacent um, to what you've, you've done and your great success so far, uh, maybe a little bit outside the wheelhouse. Is there like pressure to keep going or is there pressure to really do something totally outside the box?
2: Thanks for that. That was very kind. And, you know, it's interesting when you start a new position to think about where's the pressure coming from. Um, it was really fun to work with a lot of other very talented people as part of the Kriegstein Lab and as part of the Brain Initiative to generate these atlas-scale data sets. And it was a really interesting way of looking at the developing brain. And I'm hoping that those data sets that we've generated will be foundational to understand cell types and trajectories for not only my lab, but also for the whole community. But I think that the pressure now is how can you take information that, you know, you have these massive data sets, how can you make that useful? So I think for me, I don't know if it's necessarily a pivot or the next extension of what needs to happen, but I think that with an understanding of what the developing human brain is looking like, the question is, how can we understand that at a level that will help us make sense of things like neurodevelopmental disorders, of brain cancer, of improving the model systems that we have on hand. Cortical organoids are a total revolution in the field, but there's also room for those them to become more accurate representations of the human brain. And so I think in the lab, as we're starting up, we're trying to do a little bit of everything. Can we do a little bit of mechanism and understand how some of these factors that we're finding in the single cell data sets are driving regulatory processes in brain development, but then can we also improve the system so that we can better study neurodevelopmental disorders? And then how can we integrate with our colleagues here at UCLA who have really great tools and access to patient samples and other strengths in areas such as metabolism to work together and build on their strengths to drive all of these biological questions forward? So I think anytime you're starting a new thing. There's always pressure because you haven't proven yourself in that context. Um, I don't think it's subject specific. I think that all assistant professors feel this pressure and especially in the pandemic and especially in the funding environment where everything is very competitive. It's, uh, you know, challenging to know whether or not you've got the got what it takes to get the funding, to get the get the papers out on your own. And uh, I just feel lucky to be at UCLA because I feel like everyone's been really supportive here so far.
1: Yeah, you're definitely on a good start, Dr. Baduri. And let's talk a little bit about the the Atlas work since you brought brought it up actually. So it's a big part of your lab's work and it's of course some of your claim to fame and your focus in the single cell biology and in particular how you've leveraged the technology that Everybody seems to be using, everybody seems to be creating their own tissue-specific cell atlases, right? Whether it's of the brain, whether it's of the liver, the heart, so on. And so you actually use this atlas approach to catalog the cell types that are found in glio and as all, also in the developing brain. You actually had that Nature Neuroscience paper that used single cell in the developing brain to highlight the heterogeneity of human neuroepithelial cells and also some early radial glia. So as I mentioned, you know, everybody seems to be using these atlases these days. And I guess it's it's a bit of a contrast, right? Because these technologies keep on improving. It seems like the single cell technology keeps on allowing you to get more and more cells in your analyses. So is this something that just you just keep on building on? Do you think you'll have to rework some of these data sets in the near future as the technology evolves?
2: I definitely think that the technological Advancement is both exciting, but also a challenge for how do you continue to also identify new biology. And I think that you know one argument for not necessarily always doing more and better is that the first paper that I was involved with in the Kriegstein lab in collaboration with um, Tom Nowakowski, that was using the older technology. It was a a fluidic microfluidic approach, the imc one strategy, and There was data from 48 individuals, but only 4,000 cells. And yet, because that data was very high quality, it was able to identify a lot of the ground truths that we're seeing to be true as we expand the cell number to 100x that. So, you know, in some ways, as long as the data is good, even if it's small, it can be very useful. However, I think that given the scale of the human brain and how many cells exist and how many cell types presumably exist. I don't think that we have yet generated enough data to really comprehensively identify what exists in the adult and then how that connects to all of the developmental time points. And I think that that's a big question that is still left in the field from a lot of the work that I worked on as a postdoc. We were able to see that there are what we... Interpret as some blurry cell types, things that are not fully resolved. And what we don't know is whether they are continuously changing and need to mature at later stages, or if they're already maturing, but we can't identify it that yet because we can't link them to some of the adult populations. And so I'm really excited by the next stages of the brain initiative, where there's going to be more emphasis on human and human data sets, because there are big differences between human and other model organisms. And I think that these single cell data are one of the ways to look at those differences and understand what it is that makes us human and what goes wrong in various neurodevelopmental disorders. But also, I think that it needs to be paired with functional experimentation and other approaches that will allow us to get this holistic picture. And so um, I'm excited to work on some of those next steps as it relates to improving the models and doing some of the functional experiments and maybe being more peripherally involved with some of the data integration and analysis of some of the larger data sets, but hopefully not only just generating atlases for the next stages of my career
0: (laughs) yes you're not just going to be the atlas the atlas doc but um you know speaking to the to the the scope of the work it's a it's big right and there's a lot of scientists you need to get involved to really integrate it into something that's comprehensible and has meaning um and I would argue that you're amongst this new generation of scientists that's starting their labs in the era of single cell and bioinformatics where like, it's not, you know, bioinformatics has been around for a while, but the PIs, I think if you need to have some bioinformatics in your lab, you get a guy, you get somebody in there to do it for you. Whereas I feel like maybe you're in this generation where you get the data off the pipeline and you and you do the analysis, you know what I mean? Because, because you're a postdoc or you were a postdoc um and you don't you can't always get a, get get somebody to do it for you. So um I wonder do you think that like that's kind of a prerequisite? I remember when I was like in my early training I'd look around and be like there's there's PIs who don't know how to make a PowerPoint p- proposal. You know, they're sending their their stuff to the to Photoshop to get slides made. I mean, it's ridiculous. Do you think that this generation of scientists is going to be implicit that everybody has some kind of uh, familiarity or expertise with the bioinformatics interface and I ask because you know, we talk about this big collaborative effort and how many different expertise come together. But if I'm really honest, I've worked with bioinformaticians and we just don't see things the exact same way, right? So when I want something, I have to go through them and it adds a multiplier of like 10x to how long it takes to do anything. I got to send it to him an email. He's got to send it back. Is it this? And I No, 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 it's that. And then it's a big, you know, snafu. And then two weeks later, I have my UMAP plot. So i mean, it's saying, do you think that you, who's someone who gets it off the pipe and just starts grinding the data, you must see so deep into it. Is there more to be gleaned as being the primary scientist who has the question in mind, looking at the data, or do you think it can work in the future, having all this, you know, many different, many different expertise in the one lab? Um, what
2: a great description. I think that you really nailed the problem on the head. And I have to say that while I've been very fortunate to be trained in both wet lab science and in bioinformatics, I can't say that I'm the one who had the vision that this would be the future. I really have to give credit to Paul Kavari, who is my PhD advisor. And, you know, looking back, it feels like he kind of saw that this is where the field was going And he thought that myself and a couple other graduate students in the lab could really be the guinea pigs to see how this will work, where you do the experiments and you do the analysis and you collaborate very closely with people who don't have that analytical ability in order to really close the gaps, just as you described. Because there's so many assumptions that go into both the experimental side and the informatic side that it's really difficult to come up with testable hypotheses as a bioinformatician to take back into the lab if you don't understand how the experiment was designed in the first place. And then you can't make rational decisions for the different assumptions that you're making in any analysis. There's so many different parameters that you have to set or different levels at which you have to look at the data that I think it makes it more challenging. That's not to say that there can never be communication between the groups, but I think that especially as the amount of data just balloons in the public sphere, it's really important to have at least some literacy of what's happening on either side of the wet lab or the bioinformatics. And so I've taken this very seriously. Every person in my lab is learning both informatics and wet lab and they haven't really had a choice about it, but they've been excited about it because I feel like this next generation really understands the value of data and wants to be on the ground generating the single cell data and then doing their own analysis. And so it's really exciting to see how they're diving in, but also really wonderful that a lot of tools have been developed that make it easier to access and easier to dive in. And so credit to people like Rahul teacher who've been able to create packages like Surat that are continuously evolving and staying up to date and integrating the literature so that as those of us who do bridge both sides don't have to do all of that in addition to the analysis that we're trying to do. And while not everything that we do is in Surat, it's definitely a good framework and a great teaching tool for people who are just getting started and a great way of helping people be creative. And what I really love about doing this experimental bioinformatics integration in the lab is that the uh, graduate students that I'm seeing are so creative and, you know, they're coming in there and they're designing projects in ways that will allow them to integrate that these two different sides of the coin, which I think will make the science that we are doing uh, much better moving forward.
1: Hmm yeah i think ideally you would like to have that dichotomy that you know yin and yang of the wet lab and the bioinformatics approach but i think maybe down the road there's going to be a point where we have so many data sets to just parse through that you know entire graduate training programs you may never have to touch the wet lab and i think we are starting to slowly get to that point just the the number of Atlas-based data sets and other single-cell data sets that we have is just astounding. But I think at this point, we still need the wet lab. And your lab and your approach is still certainly employing the wet lab and in particular organoids to study brain development. So let's talk about that other half of the technologies that you're developing in the lab and focusing on organoids. So you're intersecting the single cell approaches that we talked about. And you actually just published a study in Nature where you saw the cortical organoids have a higher level of metabolic stress and that activation of the stress in primary cells and culture also impairs subtype specification. But Mm -hmm. the important thing was that when you transplanted the organoids into the mouse brain, it actually alleviated the stress and improved the subtype specification, right? So we talk about the importance of the niche all the time on the show and cell maturation through different IPS-derived cell types, right? Uh, We talk about it ad nauseum. And it seems like a shortcut is what you're actually just des- describing here. To so perhaps enhance organoid maturation, you just have to transplant these things into an in vivo system. So why don't you walk us through that really neat study, and in particular, what sort of approaches we might want to consider to actually make these cortical organoids more mature?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that study emerged from some of our initial observations of the primary data, and we had some single cell from cortical organoids, and we wanted to integrate them. And it just wasn't working effectively. We were able to use various batch correction strategies to make them come together. But in doing so, we were losing a lot of the clarity of cell types that we were seeing in the data sets. And so we thought we would dive into that deeper. And what we were able to see is that there's broad cell types that are preserved in the cortical organoid that are similar to what we see in primary development, but a lot of the cell subtypes, so specific types of radial glia, for example, I believe in that study, we had seven different clusters of radial glia, and we were seeing what we were calling a pan-radial glia subtype, where many of them were co-expressed in the same cell in the same cluster in the organoid, where you just weren't getting that clean specification. And so we've been able to correlate that to the metabolic stress that we see to be upregulated in the cortical organoid. And in that study, we were able to, as you said, take the organoid. In this case, we dissociated the cells, put them into the mouth, and we were able to see improved cell type, sub cell subtype specification by single cell sequencing But also, we were able to see a reduction in the metabolic stress. And one of the things that was really fascinating was that the morphological complexity of these cells just really blossomed. So we could see parallel time points of organoids that we left in culture and those that we transplanted into the mouse. And you were just getting these much more expansive processes, both for neurons and glial populations. And they just looked more like the types of cells that you expect to see in the primary developing in adult human brain. And so that was really exciting for us to be able to alleviate the stress and to drive the subtype specification, because what it told us is that the organoids do have the potential to mature and to make these subtypes. So the question is, why does the in vivo environment do this? Is there something from that context that we could take back to culture? Because one of the downsides of doing this in an in vivo environment is you lose the scale. It's very easy to make hundreds and hundreds of organoids at one time, as long as you're willing to spend the money on the media. But if you put it into a mouse, you have to have a certain number of mice, you have to do those injections, it takes time, and then you don't have direct access to the cells all at the same time. And so I think that there's a there's a lot of room, and this is something that I'm excited to start working on as well to characterize what exactly is it about that in vivo niche that is allowing these human cells to mature properly. And how proper is it? We know that there are things that look more similar to the primary, but can we establish exactly what age the samples are becoming? How quickly are they maturing? Um, There's a lot of questions about what the influences are that are driving that and then also what they're creating in that mouse context that we could then take some of those factors and either put them into culture or change things about the environment. I know that there are a lot of people working on cool engineering ideas, for example, to vascularize organoids. Is that part of it? Is that what's driving some of this? And if we could do that, would that solve many of these issues? Do we need more inhibitory cell types? There's been a lot of work that's been done on assembloids where you can get uh, inhibitory cells and in the normal developing brain, those inhibitory cells are migrating in pretty early? Will those help with circuit maturation and also just having partnered um, cell types that can work together to drive maturation? And I think what's really cool about the organoid system is it's one of the only ways in which we can study how this happens in the human and do it in a way where we can isolate each of these questions. So, you know, maybe it is, a weakness of the system that it's upregulating these metabolic uh, stress pathways. But also it's an opportunity to explore, you know, can we add things back in and see what changes both the subtype specification and the metabolism. So the way that I'm trying to think about it is, while there are some limitations, it's also a blank slate. Because in a mouse, you can never get the cortex without the inhibitory cells or you know you, n- you need to do a lot to get those types of systems and so this is really an opportunity to take it to those different places and understand some of the core biological principles as well that will help us understand human brain development while also hopefully improving the system continuously
0: yeah it's a beautiful system the organoids, and and it's relatively new um that we breached this, you know, dimension, the third dimension. But now that we're in it, we see how deep we have to go, right? And, and you just alluded to it, all the complexity yeah. of actual tissue, the vascularization, the, you know, the other cell types that are um, cooperatively or inhibitory. Uh, and it's about context, right? You started your answer talking about the context and Arun was talking about the niche. And, and I wouldn't say it's one of the weaknesses or limitations necessarily, but it's a fact of single cell that you got to break these things down, right? You got to deconstruct and do your analysis. And then you reconstruct in these Disney or Umat plots that just, you know, you anthropomorphize into like a rabbit shooting a gun or something. But, um, the, the, the actual data that you look at, it's just a bunch of dots at the end of the day, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's ubiquitous, right? We're used to it, but I'm, I'm really excited now about the spatial transcriptomic stuff, you know, Visium and other, other stuff, uh, that adds back the anatomical context. And a lot of them are really, they're born out of the brain. All the studies you see out right now are about the brain because there's so much to learn and there's so many layers and there's so much complexity and the boundaries are so discreet. Um, but as the tech continues to mature, the resolution continues to increase, you know, I think it was like 50 microns, but it's just gonna go down, 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 right? And there's even these this nature biotech Bayesian analysis or something, got it down to cellular resolution just by bioinformatic analysis. So like we're mm-hmm. we're increasing the resolution. Um, and then you have like cytoff mass cytometry is on the other side of things. You just wonder and you picture a future where we're measuring all the transcripts and proteins within an anatomically defined and faithful tissue, but at single cell resolution, right? If you want to go mm-hmm. out to the terminus singularity of genomics, right? Um, and proteomics. But like you talked about this early, early on in the interview, you know, there's, there's, there's information and there's meaning. How is that, if we get to that singularity, how is that going to change neurobiology in your opinion? What's going to be like the most manifest and you know startling uh, change? Stark are one of them. And, and even with all that data, there's still got to be a limit, right? What are the limitations? What can't we do even with all that, do you think?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that it's really cool that the technologies are getting so multimodal and the spatial aspect just gives you a completely new dimension to be able to look at what is happening in the brain that we couldn't see before. And especially... I think all organs have important spatial structures. But as someone who studies the brain, I'll say the brain has the coolest spatial structures where you have, you know, layers of neurons that make up the cortical plates and that those are so that layer identity is so important to many of the aspects of connectivity and function that really define how these circuits work and ultimately what makes us who we are. So I think that it's a huge revolution, as you just described. I'd like to start with some of the limitations, because this is something that we've been thinking about extensively and something that we tried to work on in uh, the last paper from my postdoc, which is on Bioarchive now. And we were trying to look at the spatial context of many of the genes that we were finding to be area-specific. And what we saw there is that we, work, we collaborated with a company that um, is called Rebus Biosciences uh, in the Bay Area. And one of the advantages of that technology was that we were able to image huge swaths of the tissue. So, currently, the size of human brain tissue is a major limitation. But the trade off is with this technology, we can only look at 30 genes or so at a time. And so, I think that that's one other dimension that we need to overcome, which is the ability to not only be able to look at many genes simultaneously but then to be able to image them in a way that isn't gonna take us months to do the imaging and then have a way of interpreting the data. And so you asked what is like the things that we could identify with these types of data sets. And I think that the potential there is really to take those UMAPs, which are kind of completely abstracted from the context from which they were derived and place them into time and space. And what was really striking, and I don't know what the significance of this is yet. It's something that's really fascinating to me. But in our study, we saw that some of these area-specific markers were validating what we expected for some of their areas at certain time points. But what was absolutely shocking was how much variability there was in terms of the laminar positioning of these markers. They're going haywire across the brain which is something that we would have never seen without a spatial approach. And also they're just from these 31 genes. So a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of what we're seeing expressed in our single cell data. When we were looking at the single cell context, their co-expression patterns were totally wild and totally different from prefrontal cortex to visual cortex to temporal cortex. Now, what does it mean for this laminar specification? Is it just a reflection of different maturation rates across different parts of the cortex? Or is there something else going on? And I think that it might be a little bit of both, but I think that it opens a whole new door of discovery that we haven't thought about. And so if we think about this in terms of what this can do for things like glioblastoma, for example, I think that it can really give us an understanding of Because invasion, as I was saying, is such an important aspect of the cancer, it could give us an understanding of where those invasive cells coming from within the tumor in a almost three-dimensional sense. We may think that they're probably coming from the edges, but I think there's also an argument based on a lot of the radial glia biology that we know that maybe they're not totally coming from the edges. Maybe there are other aspects of the niche that are really kind of spewing out those cell types. So I think it gives you a whole nother access of identity to study the normal brain and understand what it doesn't normally look like and then what happens in neurodevelopmental disorders, cancer, neurodegeneration, and how does that specifically localize to things like cortical area and brain structure, which is something that I'm really excited about understanding and I think just adds a whole other layer of complexity. So unfortunately, I don't have great answers about where this is going, because as I see this data, it just opens up way more questions than answers. But I think that that's kind of why we need this next frontier to start asking those questions.
1: Yeah, I think the spatial temporal approach to integrating, you know, the organoid technology to the single cell approaches are really going to take, you know, uh, neurobiology to the next level. And I think we are approaching that singularity, as Dale mentioned, but I think as for now, I think you got plenty of stuff on your plate, Dr. Baduri, to, to dive into. So, shifting. Absolutely. absolutely. And shifting away from the tech just for a moment, and you can come back to it if you want to. You're, of course, a new PI at UCLA, and that's part of the reason we wanted to highlight you here on the show, just to give you a little bit of publicity for your new lab. You're just down the road from me at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I'm at Cedars here at UCLA. And notably, you've had to navigate starting up your lab in the midst of a pandemic, which, of course, is tough enough starting and managing your lab in normal times. But to do it in the middle of an international crisis that significantly shut down research operations must have been challenging, to say the least. So what sort of lessons have you learned from this, I'm sure, really stressful process? And what advice do you have for other new PIs who are just now getting started in the middle of this really unique time in history?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, thanks for highlighting us and our lab. We really appreciate that. And it's been interesting. So I think perhaps to my benefit, I haven't done this before. So I don't entirely know how starting a lab is different in a pandemic versus not. So sometimes what you don't know uh, can't depress you too much. Hmm. Um, I must say that UCLA has been incredibly supportive. So even though we were at 50% density when I started, people have been super, super helpful, whether it's over Zoom or email or the neighboring labs in person it's just been a really great community. So my first piece of advice is go somewhere when you're starting your lab that's going to support you as you're starting in a pandemic and really help you out. The things that have been really interesting have been, one, the density. Most of, Many of the lab members for the first couple of quarters, when we were at 50% density, we're now at 100%, uh, didn't meet each other because they were coming in at different times and they couldn't overlap. And so we would only see each other on Zoom during lab meeting, which was very strange. It also meant that anything that we were doing or learning in the lab, we had to do one at a time, which was really great for developing relationships with students and people who were starting in the lab, including my postdoc and my senior researcher, who have been really amazing. But um, it also just really extended the amount of time that a lot of the learning needed to take. And so that was something that, was somewhat challenging, but I would say the thing that was the most challenging is the unpredictability of the supply chains. And there were weeks and months where there were no gloves, and of course that was totally understandable. There was a huge backlog on things like minus 80s, which again, very important vaccines are essential. I'm very happy that those were going towards storage of the Pfizer vaccine, but also there's certain things you just can't do if you don't have minus 80 space. Um, and I must say that people in the lab have really Been very calm and resourceful and have figured things out and really appreciate them and really appreciate our neighbors sharing boxes of pipette tips when none of us know when the next shipments are going to come in. So we have none, they might have none two weeks from now, but they're still sharing. And I think that that really, you know, there were challenges, but I think it really helped me and my lab members feel connected to our community. Even if we weren't seeing them in person. So it's been very interesting, but it seems like things are starting to look up. And I think that we now all have a much better understanding of what needs to happen if we ever do have to go through something like this again. Um, hopefully not given the vaccination rates, et cetera. But you know, if it does need to happen, I think people are just more prepared this time around. And I must say that. I had it much easier than people who started one year before me because I started this January when we kind of had a sense for, we could be at 50% density But people who were just starting a year ago, their labs closed three months in, and no, nothing could happen for three months. And so that was absolutely crazy. And so it's been good to talk to them as well and, you know, have that community of young faculty here at UCLA where we can problem solve and commiserate together.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's tough. Uh, for them. It's tough for you. It's tough for everybody. But now it's, I feel like it's a, there's a real sense of optimism, community, and looking forward right now that it seems, uh, all evidence seems uh, that it's behind us. There really, I would think, is a, a sense of exuberance moving forward. And as you said, it really kind of crystallizes the intent and uh, the focus of all the, the young researchers out there and probably has inspired a lot of young scientists um, I don't know necessarily to get specifically into brain organoids, but I mean, maybe a few thinking of the next pandemic that's going to be a hybrid of Zika and COVID and leave us all, you know, roaming the earth as zombies. Let's hope not. Um, but as you said, interesting times to start anything. And uh, I'm I'm really excited to see uh, what you your output once you get rolling. But before we let you go, um, back to the lab. To put out some more nature papers. We're going to ask you a couple of <laughs> peripheral questions. Uh, the first one is if you were not a scientist, don't get any ideas, but if you were not a scientist, what would you be?
2: So, I would definitely be a journalist, potentially an investigative journalist, but definitely a journalist. And you know, I was thinking about this, and I've always loved stories, my favorite part of science is putting together stories, so taking the data and making ties between them. And I particularly like stories that are true, which is why I wouldn't be a fiction writer Hmm. or some sort of novelist, but rather a journalist, because I like really digging into what's happening in the world and hearing the human interest side of things and hearing how different crimes are solved or just you know, listening to podcasts from other people's experiences. And it's just really fun for me to tell stories, to consume stories, and I could spend my whole day reading books, watching TV, looking at, listening to podcasts, and all of those things are things that really excite me. So I feel like if I wasn't a scientist, I would be an investigative journalist, but I like to think that I am an investigative journalist just as it relates to the brain.
0: I believe that is true. I mean, I could hear it now ringing out in the newsroom. Aparna's got the scoop. Last question. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, professional or not?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I've been given a lot of advice when starting the lab and when deciding to go to graduate school, all of the above. And I think that I've been very lucky to have a very – Involved family and wonderful mentors. But I think one of the pieces of advice that has stuck with me has come from, I'm pretty sure it was my grad advisor, but I'm not 100% sure. But basically, this person told me that look, everything you do in life, in science, is usually something similar to what people around you have done before. So watch them when they're doing it. And you will make mistakes, but do your best not to make the same mistakes that they've made make new mistakes. Because, you know, the way that I interpret this is it's really important to learn from the people around you. So watch them, talk to them, and try to really analyze what's happening so that when you make mistakes, you can make new mistakes for your peers to learn from. And that way we can all progress as society, but we don't have to keep repeating the mistakes about others. So I try to do this, not sure that I'm always successful, but Uh, Especially when starting the lab, I definitely tried to talk to as many people who had started a lab before and ask them what their different pitfalls were and, you know, what mistakes they felt they had made. And I've tried to do my best to not make the same ones, but I think only time will tell.
0: I like that bit of advice, although I don't know if I would give it to my own grad students only because I wouldn't know how to say it. I mean, I, I myself hearing that, I would aspire to keep making mistakes for the rest of my life, but that seems like weird advice. Um, but nevertheless, uh, if you can make every mistake only once, then you're making progress, right Aparna? Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It's been a really fun chat. And like I said, we're going to have to have you back on when you circle the scientific journals and, you know, find your, your next two or three stories, we'll, we'll, we'll review. Thanks a million for being on the show.
2: Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it.
0: That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another regular episode. And you can jump over to YouTube or uh, the podcast website to find our other parallel episodes from the ISSCR 2021. Check that out, too. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.